I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Story time. I work as a security guard on the graveyard shift. I think most guards of all... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
gotten the heebie-jeebies a few times on this shift. I used to work at a large semi-well-known meat processing plant. I remember it was about 2 am and I was making my inside rounds, and I was walking down the third floor hallway. The third floor is basically just a bunch of electrical access panels and storage rooms. There are a few offices up there but for the most part there's nothing special up there. So I'm going along checking that doorknobs are locked etc. Making sure nothing looks broken etc. Then my phone chimes. I'm like who the F is messaging me this late. I pull out my phone and there's no message. I chalk it off as a notification for an app but I don't see any notifications. Well whatever no big deal. Then about 2 minutes later my radio turns on and I hear static. Now this spooks me. No one else has access to radio at this point. I'm the only living human on the entire property and all the other radios are under lock and key inside my guard shack, also under lock and key. We wear a radio for formality mostly. I can switch it to a different channel to talk with the one maintenance guy who's there, but Hess not working this night so it's like, hmm that's a little weird. I switch to that channel and I say security to M4, are you there? M4 equals maintenance employee 4, there's three different guys that do it on a rotating schedule. But no reply. I hear the radio turn on again, this time it sounds like somebody is fumbling with the mic but I can't hear any words. At this point I'm like well f, guess I should go check it out. I make my way to the maintenance office. It's in the basement, the one place I don't like to go, because for one I always get weird feelings going down the stairs, and two, the entire basement is just a bunch of access tunnels and generators. It's pretty much a maze just beckoning to get you to be lost in. So I go down there, the whole time my radio is randomly turning on and shit. I get to the office and as expected it's locked, lights are off etc. I breathe a sigh of relief and turn to go, thinking he'll just write this down on the daily report as malfunctioning equipment. But as I start to almost walk around the turn in the hallway, I hear the sound of the maintenance door unlocking. I stop dead in my tracks and turn around. My heart is kind of beating harder at this point. I reach for my Tatsugan, and ready it, aiming it out before me, while I go back to the office. Lights are still off. Can't see a damn thing in there. For a food 5 minutes I stand at the door questioning if this is worth it? Do I make enough for this kind of BS? What if there's a criminal in there? How would that even be possible? Did someone sneak up one me? Am I going to die in a minute? I finally said F it and pushed the door open, and reached in and flipped on the lights. Nothing. No one is in there. I look under the desk. Constantly on edge. I see nothing. I look at the desk surface, see if there's any notes, etc., but nothing. I start to sigh of relief and then the lights suddenly turn off and the door locks itself. I freak the F out and switch on my mag light and swing around. As I'm swinging around I see a shadow move away from the light. My eyes see it and mentally I freak the F out, but I force myself to ignore it while I fumble to get my keys out to unlock the door. To do so I have to turn the flashlight off so I have both hands. The whole time I have my back turned to the door I feel like I'm being watched by something sinister. I eventually get the door unlocked, and step out into the hallway. I turn around, flip the lights on, 
see nothing, turn them off, shut the door, and lock it. I look at my watch. It's like 2.30 am-ish. I lean up against the hallway wall breathing heavily. My mind replaying everything in my head. Trying to figure out what the F just happened. I eventually give up and hurriedly make my way back to the first floor. I get back to the first floor and at this point I have no desire to go back to the third floor. I can do it some other time. So I eventually make it to the exit, and just before I walk out the door to go outside to my guard shack, the radio turns on and there's some static and I faintly hear someone laugh. Just a short like ha, and then it's dead. I yank my radio out of my pocket clip and look at it. I go to turn on the mic, to say like F you or something, but my radio's totally utterly dead. I live in North Texas near a large wildlife refuge and a lake bigger than my hometown. One night I had a fantastic idea to go down the long gravel road to the dock with a female friend of mine. I'm from Texas, so I usually carry, but opted to leave my gun locked in the glove box by the gate. About 30 yards into the trek, the road was about 200 yards to the dock, I hear an unnerving noise on my left. It was as if the earth itself growled and rumbled at me. I looked around frantically, trying to pinpoint the sound. Nothing. We stood still, waiting for it to resume. Instead we hear just heavy footsteps, not crashing or rustling like a bear or a pig does, but heavy pacing. I turned to my friend and asked if she wants to go back. She didn't know, but wanted to get out of there. So we keep on our journey to the dock with the unnatural growling, rumbling following us, coupled with the heavy paces. I'm terrified by this point, instinctively reaching for my right hip to find a blank space where a holster should be. I had left my pistol locked in the glove box. I grab my pocket knife, and palm it aggressively. The rumbling continues, almost impacting the air with its weight. We hasten our pace and it matches ours, but never coming out of the woods to show itself. This continues for about 300 yards. The entire time I am absolutely terrified. I've been hunting and camping since I was six and I've never heard a sound like this one or even had an experience similar. Finally, arriving to the dock, she sprints out to the edge and I grab a handful of rocks and go sit beside her. For the next 15 minutes it circles the area around the dock landing, emanating the rumbles and growls. Nothing we can do, it's dark, I have no firearm and we can't see it. I call my buddy Dennis who lives 5 minutes away. The rumbling and pacing continues, roughly 30 to 40 yards away from us but it doesn't step foot on the dock. Finally I see headlights come up over the trees and the rumbling fades into darkness. Dennis comes walking down, cradling a rifle, and that was the end of that. Really freaked me out for a couple of months. I'm a believer in cryptozoology now. I don't know if Bigfoot exists but something does that may be similar, especially considering most cultures have their monster. I didn't personally hear the noise. It was my father who shared this story with me upon returning from an early morning hunting trip. He admitted that he couldn't identify the source of the sound, leaving open the possibility that it could have been a Bigfoot. However, he chose not to report it, considering it too absurd. 
Based on his account, though, I am inclined to believe that it was indeed a Sasquatch. The incident occurred during the early hours of the morning, before the sun had even risen. Positioned on a ridge, my father patiently awaited the first light of day, hoping to spot any deer in the vicinity. As the sun gradually made its appearance, the chorus of birdsong filled the air. But as soon as the sun crested over the eastern mountain, a distinct sound reached his ears. Instantly, the avian symphony fell silent, as if abruptly muted. In that hushed moment, my father discerned the unmistakable sound of an animal crashing through the creek below. A peculiar sensation washed over him, causing the hairs on the back of his neck to stand on end. Instinctively, he felt a strange foreboding and promptly decided to leave the area. In recounting the noise, my father likened it to the echoing reverberation of metal meeting metal within a vast chamber. The sound seemed to originate from a considerable distance, possibly from the next mountain over, although he couldn't determine the precise direction. While I wasn't personally present to witness these events, the sincerity in my father's voice and the eerie details he shared leave little doubt in my mind that something truly extraordinary occurred that morning, a fleeting encounter with the mysterious Sasquatch. Randy and I were passionate explorers, drawn to the allure of wilderness secrets. Our favorite spot, Bigfoot Mountain, nestled near Ripplebrook Ranger Station, carried the mystique of cryptid encounters. Eager to uncover the truth, we embarked on our spring exploration, braving the snowy landscape. March greeted us with a chill, but our determination remained unwavering. Equipped and enthusiastic, we meticulously scoured the area, seeking any sign of Bigfoot. Weeks passed, and May brought our reward. One misty morning, a faint chattering sound halted us mid-hike. Anticipation surged as we scanned for movement. With cautious steps, we ventured deeper, attuned to every sound. And there it was, the unmistakable footprints of a massive creature. Excitement coursed through us, fully aware of the extraordinary presence. Undeterred, our curiosity propelled us forward. In June, I stumbled upon a secluded area adorned with deep, systematic scratches, powerful claw marks. A clear sign of primal force traversing these woods. Fate had more in store. During a solitary expedition, I reached a sunlit clearing. A hush fell, an energy filled the air. And then, a glimpse of movement among the ancient trees. Bigfoot emerged, a towering figure cloaked in matted hair. Time stood still as we locked eyes, captivated by its power and beauty. In that fleeting moment, fear, awe, and respect intertwined. Bigfoot observed me with ancient wisdom. And just as quickly as it appeared, it vanished, leaving me in profound wonder. I spent over 20 years working as a ranger in Northern Carolina, where I encountered numerous strange and even gruesome incidents. During my time there, I discovered several lifeless bodies, thankfully all leading to the apprehension of the culprits by the police. However, it wasn't these killings that drove me to quit my job and never return. It was something inexplicable, something so peculiar that even now I question whether it was a mere dream, vision, or a genuine occurrence. 
Allow me to recount what I witnessed from the very beginning. It was the middle of scorching August, as the sun mercilessly beat down upon the ground. Few people visited the park during the day due to the obvious reasons. I detested leaving my guard hut to conduct a tour, as it would inevitably result in profuse sweating and feeling as if I were being cooked in a pan. By my third and final tour of the day, I was already exhausted, despite drinking copious amounts of water to combat the heat. I was aware that another ranger would replace me for the next shift. During my walk, around halfway through, I started feeling disoriented and lightheaded. My strength dwindled gradually until I could no longer stand. Seeking respite, I settled under a nearby tree to rest and regain my energy. However, the intensity of the sun and the heat proved overpowering. That's when things began to appear surreal, as if trapped between reality and illusion. Tall, shadowy figures emerged from behind trees, moving aimlessly and at a slow pace. Immobilized and struggling to breathe properly, I sat there, fixated on their eerie presence. Within minutes, an uncountable number of these figures had materialized, some seemingly rising straight from the ground. Initially, they paid me no attention, merely wandering around and emitting agonizing screams, reminiscent of someone being cooked alive. Suddenly, one of these figures noticed me and slowly approached, compelled to crouch due to its towering height of over eight feet. I was petrified, devoid of the strength to react. The figure's screams persisted without pause as it positioned itself beside me, placing its hand on my cheek. I began to feel an intense burning sensation, and consciousness slipped away from me. Approximately an hour later, my fellow rangers discovered me unconscious on the ground. They promptly called for an ambulance, and upon awakening, I found myself in a hospital bed. However, my relief was short-lived, as I gazed upon a fiery red handprint seared onto my skin. The sight terrified me to such an extent that I had no choice but to resign. Understandably, my superiors and colleagues never believed my account. I can't say I blame them for their skepticism. There have been several reported sightings throughout Sedgwick County, all recounted by different law enforcement officials. Although such sightings are uncommon, they do occur. On October 17, 2010, another officer, who was working outside of his usual schedule, had his own unforgettable encounter. While patrolling the remote areas of Wichita, he witnessed something that left an indelible mark on his memory. A large, horned humanoid, unfamiliar to him, came into view. The officer's report detailed the events that transpired that morning. At approximately 7 am, I received a dispatch call regarding a suspicion person at an abandoned residence. Upon arriving at the location, I found no one or anything suspicious around the house. Consequently, I followed tracks leading north into the nearby woods, accompanied by Sergeant A. As we tracked, I caught sight of movement along the east hilltop through the thick brush. It appeared to be a hunched figure, resembling a person, moving northward behind cover. I immediately alerted Sergeant A to be on the lookout for what I had observed. Sergeant A joined me, inquiring about what I had seen as he approached. At that moment, both of us distinctly heard heavy footsteps originating from our 10 o'clock position. 
Despite our careful search, we could not visually confirm the source of the sounds. Thus, we decided to head west toward our vehicle, where better lighting would aid our investigation. The being, whether human or otherwise, displayed exceptional caution in its movements. Both Sergeant A and I glimpsed what appeared to be an extraordinarily tall figure, standing upright but hunched over, approximately six feet in height. Its coloration seemed to be a grayish or possibly brown hue. As the being acknowledged our presence, it turned its head to the left, as if attempting to conceal itself using the surrounding trees. Sergeant asked if I had witnessed the same sighting, confirming that we shared the same experience. What we observed next froze us in our tracks. The being lifted its right arm over its head, revealing an enormous hand adorned with large, black claws, resembling a paw but more akin to a human hand. Both Sergeant A and I were startled by what we saw. To our surprise, a set of large horns protruded from its head, reminiscent of those found on a goat or ram. The sight left an indelible impression on our minds. Curiously, no reports matching this particular sighting have been documented. However, the region has seen numerous accounts of Bigfoot sightings reported by fellow officers. One such sighting was reported by a deputy sheriff who responded to a citizen's report of Bigfoot activity in the area. When the deputy arrived at the location, I accompanied him to investigate further. As my partner and I approached, we spotted something standing approximately 200 yards away. The figure, with only its head and shoulders visible, appeared non-human. It seemed to be observing something either within the vicinity or approaching from the ravine. What caught my attention were the two bright eyes positioned above the surrounding vegetation. My partner exclaimed, it's Bigfoot. In an attempt to intercept the creature before it reached Highway 54, we sprinted towards an adjacent open field. Regrettably, we lost sight of it. My partner proceeded towards the location where we had last seen it, maintaining a distance near the ravine, under the assumption that Bigfoot might still be present at the bottom of our line of sight. However, my partner reported, I don't see anything. As we made our way back toward each other, we noticed a large, grayish figure peering down at us from an embankment. It seemed curious, observing our actions. The creature swiftly descended into a densely wooded area atop a nearby hillside, placing it in close proximity to the highway. Despite being deep into the open field, with no trees or obstructions obstructing our line of sight, my partner and I both had a clear view of the creature as it fled from us. It did not move like a human, but instead, appeared to be running on two legs. Its speed was astonishing, especially considering its size. I have served in law enforcement for over 22 years, and nothing else has come close to resembling the events of that day. Apart from the evidence left behind, such as footprints, we were unable to capture photographs or videos of the creature. However, my partner may have captured some footage while we were pursuing what we believe to be Bigfoot back into the wooded area. Unfortunately, his supervisors confiscated his camera, depriving us of any visual evidence. During the encounter, I was in uniform, but without my body armor or equipment belt, which sometimes proved limiting during pursuits through dense brush. I have reviewed Officer B's sighting report, which describes encountering a large, upright, 
Grayish figure roughly 20 feet away from him near Highway 54, just outside Sedgwick County, Kansas, on December 5, 2011. Coincidentally, this sighting occurred around the same time my partner and I were chasing a large unidentified subject across the field. While we did not hear it running, we did hear something heavy moving through the tall grass nearby, in a different direction. The sound was far too weighty to be that of a human. Although we did not regain visual contact, we remember seeing it about 150 yards away, looking downward. It was a day that will forever remain etched in my memory. While I was stationed in Cherry Point, I had the duty of inspecting the Marines barracks on Thursday morning after field day. Most rooms were normal. Dust bunnies here, scum stain there, but one day I stumbled acro as something disturbing. I went through one Marine's room, he was a avi cat, and I noticed his wall locker was unlocked. Whenever I see unlocked wall lockers, I would go through them just for kicks. Well this devil had somehow accumulated about 20 pairs of women's underwear. Some were even marked. When confronted, SNM stated, it's not a crime to have women's thongs. Turns out, it is when you steal it from the laundry room. I'm in the Marine Corps, not spooky in a supernatural way but in a I can't believe they're just going to let this slide way. One of the guys in my old unit was a quiet, keep to himself kind of guy, nice person but of course he got messed with. After a while he had enough of it and explained to one of my friends that he had a stabbing list, and you're the first one on it. He reports the incident, they file paperwork to process him out of the Marine Corps, after six months they just let it go. So there's a guy still on active duty with a clear mental issue, and I'm just kinda waiting to see him snap. Edit, I've never personally f with any of my Marines from the time I joined until now, as I said, this was a friend doing this. I remember what it was like having some asshole mess with me when I was a boot just for that reason. I pride myself on treating everyone I came in contact with with respect. I've seen how people think by picking up rank they're no longer required to work and automatically think they're special. I've made it a point to work side by side my marines instead of kicking back and supervising. I've stood up for myself and others numerous times when our worthless chain of command try to push everyone, assuming they'll just take it and never speak for themselves knowing damn well their actions aren't justified. As I've said, many military members will always F with the new guy. I don't necessarily agree with it because the only thing accomplished by that is having co-workers who have no respect for you. I can't control what others do but I guarantee any of the Marines that worked with me will tell you good things because I worked right by their side and had them call me by name and not rank. Since I don't think most military norms actually work. To begin, I'll admit that we were hiking, not hunting. I was with my brother-in-law. In the Appalachians, it's usually snowy in December but that year it was a constant 40 female or so, and too foggy to see very well. We made our way into a dense rainforest area and found what looked like an extremely overgrown, rarely trodden erosion forming a path. This didn't make sense, it was on the back of an inconvenient mountain peak, 
very craggy, and not on the way to anywhere, not even another trail. So we followed it. The deciduous canopy lay rotting on the winter ground, but little sunlight broke through anyway due to the deep fog and mountain shadow. It felt haunted. We descended into a hollow with a small creek at the bottom, and rounded a bend into a dense clump of rhododendron. Inside this rhododendron brush, we started to see weird things, like decaying rope, rusted metal, paracord, and supplies. Then the trail ended. Between two oak trees that formed a window through the brush, we could see a rusted body of metal with face-sized holes of glass on the sides. We made out the shape of a small plane from the scattered pieces. The body was only in two pieces, but the wings were unrecognizable. There was a bit of graffiti on the plane, but not as much as you would expect. It had clearly been there for a while, but some of the original gear was still in the body. I wrote down the number on the side for reference. When I got home, I googled the plane number, and found a result. Accident Report, March 1977, Western North Carolina. Damaged beyond repair. One passenger. One fatality. Body recovered. Plane unsalvageable. We found the plane in 2016. That wreckage had been left to rot for 39 years, and some the gear still had not been stolen. I know it was only one death, but that place had a deeply unsettling aura. I am not superstitious. I do not believe in ghosts, but there was something strange about that place, and I won't forget it. I didn't crawl into the plane's body, both out of fear and because I wanted to be respectful to whoever died there, but I did take pictures of it all from the outside. It was the time leading up to Easter, and our family was residing on a sprawling ranch near Malala, Oregon. Life on the ranch revolved around tending to our cattle, chickens, turkeys, and pigs. One particular evening, as we made our way home, the headlights illuminated an astonishing sight. In the glow, we caught a glimpse of a rare albino Bigfoot, crouched behind some bushes, attempting to conceal itself. But it was too late. We had already laid eyes on the extraordinary creature. Standing at an impressive seven feet tall, it sported long, flowing hair that cascaded down its body, reaching an astonishing length of eight to nine inches. The hair, a light cream color, was a striking contrast against the darkness of the night. In that moment, my mom jokingly remarked, looks like the Easter Bunny's back again. It seemed that this was becoming somewhat of an annual tradition. The third consecutive year that we had encountered the white Bigfoot, always around the Easter season. It would linger in the vicinity for several consecutive nights, evidenced by the howling of our dogs. Our ranch was located near the town of Colton, which had been mentioned earlier, making it a close neighbor to these mysterious encounters. Each sighting left us in awe and wonder, with the enigmatic presence of the white Bigfoot becoming a part of our Easter festivities, adding an element of excitement and intrigue to the season. When in the RAF I was based at Scampton, this was the base where the Dambusters raid was launched from and a bomber command airfield during the war. I was on guard duty one night and had a phone call around 2 am about noises coming from one of the hangars. Sent a guard to investigate, 
He radios back and says he can hear voices mumbling and what sounds like machinery operating and tools clanging etc. I got out the keys to the hangar and on driving up sure enough there were such noises going on and the occasional flickering light. We called in the RAF police dogs but the Landshark refused to go in. This highly trained attack dog lay down, whimpered and refused to listen to its handler. I went in with the guard and the RAF policeman and can only describe the feeling on entering the hangar floor as being surrounded in a cold fog that you couldn't see and a real feeling of dread. There was a real feeling of unhappiness in the place. I have never felt like that since, nor do I ever want to. We hightailed it out as it was secure and there was clearly no one there. Found out about a year or so later, when speaking to some visiting bomber command veterans, that it was a hangar used in the war for battle repairs on the damaged aircraft. And sometimes were aircraft which had crew members killed in them. And sometimes it took some time to either extract their bodies or gather up the bits, would be taken to be cleaned. I have been back to Scampton since but I give that hangar a very wide berth. I work as an ice logger in Peace River, Alberta. Now mind you I am there only 4 months a year. But I will tell you that we have a nice camp, a nice setup and we go 24-7 hauling wood for the big chippers, and chips go to China as wood heat, etc. Anyhow, we had a bridge out where we have to take the big chip trucks across, and were 6 of us there. Some idiot trucker threw out a bag of trash right on the river, mind you at this time in the season it was 40f below. We all saw these big tracks come out to this bag and rifle through it. This thing whatever it was dragged its feet whether to hide its prints or what. But all of us are tough, bruised, battled, and scared loggers who never said a word to each other. Just looks or I guess glare at each other. But we knew there was something there in the wood line. We've done our work and we got the hell out of there. This is the thing. Truck drivers don't have to stay in the woods like us. Whatever it was did not like that bag of trash thrown there. We were not allowed at night when we were skidding to go 5 feet from the machine, have your smoke but don't go too far. Now this is written down as an offense if you do it. Our old cook. Well she is not that old but she told us not to throw food out at the camp because it would cause ravens to come in and cause a racket in the morning. Because the boys work 12 hour shifts and hate to get woke up. Anyway, this night I was on days at the time and could not sleep. So after supper, I stayed around the kitchen talking to her. She is a Plains Cree lady and I am McMaw. So after a while like 9 or 9.30, I noticed her bagging stuff, leftover dinner, etc. I said I will take that out for you. Our trash bins are bear proof with heavy lids. She said no. So I watched her take this bag outside and lay it beside the bear proof bins. I was thinking WTF. I did not ask her much or why really she does that. But in a way, she said it was for her big friend. I did not go see if the food was gone as I worked 12 hour shifts, but I do watch here after our supper and our breakfast. She puts certain things aside for somebody or something. We have around 200 acres of woodland. Me and my dad live on the front end of the property and on the back side of the property we have a rustic hunting cabin. No water or electricity. 
The back end of our property also sits on the edge of a state forest. You have to travel something like 12 miles before you reach any kind of road or trail. Several years back during deer hunting season my dad and I were sitting around the campfire back at our hunting cabin. It was near dusk and we were done hunting for the day just relaxing. We both saw something moving in the sky that caught our attention. A larger purple shape about the size of a small car was floating along just above the tree line. It was moving rather quickly. It came from the direction of the front end of our property, came towards us, went above our heads and continued back toward the state forest until it disappeared from sight. If I had to guess I would say it was moving about 15 miles per hour. It didn't look like a cloud but it didn't look quite solid either. We both saw it happen and just kind of remained silent for a minute and then confirmed that we both saw it. Neither of us had any good guesses as to what it could have been. Only thing I can come up with is swamp gas. But that's not a good explanation I don't think. That's my strange hunting story. It hasn't been enough to keep me out of the woods but creepy all the same. I read about Maria in Puerto Rico and a few other experiencers who were cured of terminal illnesses by unknown humanoids or extraterrestrials. I wanted to add our experience to the record. Please do not use my name. We live near Orlando, Florida. On the night of July 25, 2018, I was sleeping with my six-year-old daughter, who had been suffering from an inoperable cancerous brain tumor. We were in her bedroom when we suddenly awoke to see three tall hooded beings that were standing at the foot of the bed. Each of the beings had a strange glowing aura around them. They seemed to be communicating with each other but not with my daughter or me. When I attempted to reach over to touch my daughter, I realized that she was unable to move. All she could do was move her eyes. The humanoids then came over to the side of her bed and a very peaceful feeling came over her. The being that was nearest to my daughter bent over and touched her, and everything went quiet. My memory ended at this point. The next day my daughter experienced a massive nosebleed. She expelled a very large blood clot from her nose, almost gagging her. A few weeks later I took my daughter to the oncology center for a new scheduled CT scan. Within a few hours after the scan, her oncologist calls me at home. The sound in the physician's voice was of shock and disbelief. I was told that my daughter's tumor was completely gone, apparently removed by a laser, according to the oncologist. He asked me if she had undergone a surgery that he was unaware of. I told him that the only thing that had occurred was the nosebleed and the expulsion of the blood clot a few weeks previous. He asked if I had saved the blood clot, which I hadn't. The oncologist then ordered a battery of tests and other diagnostics. We were told that no cancer or lesions were found anywhere in her body. Three months later, my daughter was declared cancer-free. It has been four years since the diagnosis and my daughter is very healthy and active. I talked to a woman in Tampa, Florida a few years ago who told me of a similar encounter that she experienced. She Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. She had stage 4 colon cancer that had metastasized throughout her body, including her brain. She described the three hooded humanoids that had visited her at home. Her cancer was totally removed. We are living proof that these incidents and miracles occur. A building way out on the north side of our base was abandoned. Water leaked in and caused mold or whatnot to grow. The kind that would get in your lungs and make you very sick. So no one had been working in this building for decades. All the office furniture was removed. Phones and everything. Building was just empty. It was also partially underground. I had walked into the building before while on post with some other co-workers. It was really spooky. Never went downstairs. Building number was 472. So fast forward a few years later I'm working as a desk sergeant dispatch for patrol at about 3 in the morning. 911 line goes off, screen says building 472. I'm like freak the F out, my alpha she freaks the F out. I pick up the phone 911 what is the nature of your emergency? Click. We send a patrol out immediately. He's like F that. When we tell him where the call came from. He gets out there, pitch black, nothing. No lights no nothing. He snoops around, doors are locked all secured. Don't know to this day how it happened, but 911 calls came out of that building about the same time every few months. The building was demolished and filled in several years back and no calls from the building since. Not me, but my father. He was in his early 30s deer hunting in Western Mass, 1980s. He was a few miles out from the main road when he came across a frozen human corpse. Immediately hiked out and called the authorities. Apparently a few miles away there was a camp for the mentally challenged, a woman had run off and got lost. My dad never did go hunting again after that. Today was just like any other day at work in the utility sector. As part of my job, I often find myself working on remote transmission lines, ensuring that everything is functioning smoothly. As I made my way along the designated right-of-way, my attention was caught by a sign that stood tall on the edge of the woods. It had a stern warning written in bold letters, Don't enter the woods. It struck me as odd as I hadn't seen such a sign before during my routine inspections. Curiosity sparked within me, but a sense of caution held me back from venturing into the dense thicket. Nevertheless, my eyes couldn't help but dart toward the mysterious woods, 
seeking answers to the questions that now lingered in my mind. And that's when I saw it, a chilling sight that sent shivers down my spine. Nestled among the trees, a wooden structure stood ominously. It was a gallows, ancient and weathered. My heart skipped a beat as I gazed upon the gallows, realizing that it held two figures, or rather, lifeless dummies dressed in black attire. Their eerie presence, suspended from the gallows by rough-hewn ropes, sent a wave of unease through my body. It was as if time had frozen in this desolate spot, where darkness and mystery coalesced. My fiancé, Stacia, and I decided to make a quick stop at Hatchet Creek for some fishing while on our way back from Flag Mountain. It was our first time seeing this area in daylight, and we were eager to enjoy its natural beauty. As luck would have it, Stacia urgently needed to relieve herself, so she ventured about 25 yards to my right to find a suitable spot. She mentioned that she was also on her menstrual cycle, adding a peculiar detail to the unfolding events. After being away for about five minutes, a loud crack shattered the peaceful atmosphere. Stacia quickly recounted that the sound came from a big tree branch breaking, merely 20 feet away from her. It was an unusual occurrence since there was no wind to cause such disturbance, and none of the surrounding trees showed any signs of movement. Upon her return, we were astonished to witness a large tree being forcefully toppled no more than 35 yards in front of us. It was a sight that defied rational explanation. The timing and proximity of these events led us to wonder if Stacia's pheromones might have attracted an alpha male Bigfoot. As she continued fishing, I couldn't resist exploring the area further. To my astonishment, I stumbled upon what appeared to be a footprint that could only belong to a Bigfoot. Excitedly, I captured several photos as evidence. Intrigued, I decided to follow the creek bed to my left and soon discovered even more distinct footprints, including one that resembled a massive handprint. It was a chilling and exhilarating moment, as I had never before encountered footprints like the ones I found that day. Leaving the footprints behind temporarily, we hurriedly departed to gather some casting powder. Returning to the site around 5.45 pm, we began the meticulous process of casting the footprints. We allowed the casting material to set undisturbed for at least an hour, as dusk gradually descended upon the landscape. It was then, in the vicinity of the fallen tree, that we were startled by a series of haunting vocalizations, a distinct hoo-hoo-ha sound that sent a shiver down our spines. Intrigued and captivated by these inexplicable occurrences, I found myself drawn back to the area on three separate occasions. During my first return visit, a close call shook us to the core when a rock narrowly missed striking the head of a colleague who accompanied me. Several months later, when we revisited the location, we were surprised to find a group of kids camping nearby. The night took an unexpected turn when one of the kids' fathers, overcome with fear, charged into the woods brandishing a shotgun in an attempt to confront whatever had terrified them. Finally, on our most recent visit, Stacia and I managed to capture unidentifiable figures on thermal imaging, further adding to the enigma that surrounded Hatchet Creek. These encounters have left an indelible mark on our lives, igniting a curiosity and fascination for the unknown. We continue to seek answers, 
yearning to unravel the mysteries that lie hidden within the depths of the wilderness, forever humbled by the untamed forces that coexist alongside us. This story begins on a cool summer night in the city of Issaquah, Washington in the year of 1989. I was a patrol sergeant. On night shift with a squad of four officers. The night had been uneventful until approximately 3 a.m. Myself and an officer I will identify as John, responded to an alarm at a business located in an exclusive shopping area known as Gilman Village. It is made up of older homes and buildings that were moved into an area near Issaquah Creek connected by a wooden walkway. Gilman Village is a very popular shopping destination for tourists and locals alike. I as a police officer enjoyed walking through the complex while working night shift for the exercise and to window shop at the many interesting stores. Receiving alarms at the different businesses throughout Gilman was common and most of the time uneventful but on this particular night there was nothing common or uneventful about it. John and I responded to the alarm at a business which was then called the Levi Coat Factory. We performed an outer perimeter check of the building and found it to be secure. Dispatch made phone contact with the owner who declined to respond to allow us to check the interior of the building. John and I returned to the parking lot located on the northwest side of the complex. This is the area where we had parked our patrol units. John and I stood outside and carried on a conversation in the dimly lit parking lot approximately 60 to 70 feet away from the buildings in that portion of the village. The buildings were to my left and to John's right. Both of us noticed an unusual movement near the eaves of one of the buildings. It was a ball of light about the size of a cantaloupe moving slowly from left to right following the area just below the eaves. The light was very intense. We start at the light until it disappeared around the south side of the building. Goosebumps prevailed. Officer John and I looked at each other eyes wide open, each asking at the same time, did you see that? What we had seen was strange enough but nothing compared to what we were about to witness. While we stood and talked about the strange event, our eyes were once again drawn to the northwest corner of the same building only this time it was the lower corner. A perfect ball of very intense light approximately one foot off the ground floated around the corner. The ball was about four feet in diameter and once again a perfect sphere. The thing that made me speechless was what I had seen inside the sphere. Walking upright was, for the lack of any other word, a creature walking. The arm swung back and forth and the hands were turned with its fingers pointed to the rear. As the sphere progressed along the side of the building it went behind bushes that grew in between the sphere and the parking lot. The light was visible through the openings of the bush and it was very clear that it was not being projected. As I recall, at least a full three minutes passed before either John or I could speak. To put it lightly we were terrorized by the unknown. This event changed the way I think and look at stories by others claiming encounters with the unknown. John and I never spoke about the event until 2010. My story goes back to 1975. My girlfriend and I were driving back to Idaho where I was going to school. We were headed towards Yellowstone Park and the Montana East Gate in a little yellow Volkswagen. It was around midnight and it was kinda snowing and, 
Picture a two-lane road with tall trees and no moon or nothing, just our headlights and the snow is falling. All of a sudden there was this figure I saw walking right in the center of the road, walking the same direction as me. In other words, her back was to me. It was a woman. At first I noticed her and I told my girlfriend, do you see what I see? A girl walking out here at midnight. It's probably about 30 degrees out. The closer we got, the more detail I could make out. It was so. I was gonna roll down my window and ask if she needed help, but we noticed that she was wearing very very old, I guess 19th century garb, clothing. And she had hobnail boots. She had a long shawl and around her shoulders and in her hair, she had long brown hair, down probably a little bit below her shoulder blades. And the closer we got, we noticed something weird. Her hair was completely dry. Not wet, like you would expect for somebody out in snow. I was about to roll down my window and my girlfriend goes, don't even stop. Don't even look. Go. You know, that freaked me out because I was just about ready to slow down. She said, don't even look in the mirror, she has no face. I drove away. You can imagine, here we are putting along in a little Volkswagen and I just slowly moved over to the right to avoid hitting her. As I moved off and later got to the gate, the ranger said sorry, the pass is closed tonight due to the snow. I asked, you mean we gotta go back? He says, well, there's a little motel about a half a mile back. We were scared out of our wits. Anyway, we got to this motel and fortunately the guy still had a room available. And as soon as we got in the room, we just locked the door and put the chair in front of it. The rest of the night we couldn't sleep. About 1 o'clock in the morning, I stepped out on the front porch to put some dry food out for the cats and, evidently, I scared some type of creature because it was eating off the porch. And when I got out there and shut the door, it went down the bottom of the stairs to the driveway. It was small, round. I didn't see any legs. I couldn't see its face. It didn't turn around. It had long brown hair that hung to the ground and it started to move. And it waddled as fast as it could which wasn't very fast. It didn't have any legs and as it waddled, it kind of moved down the driveway, it started to grow, get taller and the brown hair was gone. It became short hair, dark hair. The legs grew as it went down the driveway. It wasn't making a sound. And I thought, as it's going down, I'm thinking raccoon. It gets to the end of the driveway and it's tall like a deer and I think deer. It runs across the street. It's not making a sound. It clears the sidewalk across the street with one foot and at that point I hear a hoof print. A hoof print. It ran across the lawn the front lawn of the people up the street. They also have a concrete patio right after the lawn and at that point, it made no noise as it went across the patio. At that point, I could see that it was growing long black hair and it was running and it was flowing up behind it. I watched it until it got all the way past all their lights. The street was well lit. I saw everything from the bottom of my porch to the end of the driveway, hoof prints on the sidewalk, cleared the lawn, no noise as it was going across their patio and it started to grow long hair, black long hair that flowed out behind it. I don't know. I watched it until it went into the darkness. 
I had my porch light on. We have a street light out in front of the house. People across the street had their porch light on which was unusual for one in the morning. We live in a cul-de-sac. The street is not very wide. At the end of the cul-de-sac, there's a field there and there's a creek through their backyard. And so it ran into the darkness. A couple of days later, I went over to the lady that lives in the cul-de-sac. I went in, sat down and I told her all the things and she sat there, stared out the window for a moment and she said, well, I guess things happen. And she thought for another moment and said that she sees all kinds of animals coming up from the creek all the time. When I was 13 or 14 my mother's friend asked if I would like to babysit her kids for a few hours one night. I live in a rural town, and to get to their house you have to drive to the outskirts of the town, about 15 minutes up a steep and narrow hill, surrounded by forest. Their house was just off the road. Now if you pass their house, the road continues up into the mountains and forest and eventually starts heading down the other side and onto a main road, where you can turn right and head back to the town. This is a substantially longer route if you want to head back to town. Also pitch black as you're driving through woods. I was so exited and felt grown up to babysit. Mum's friend was lovely and her husband was a police officer. My dad dropped me off and mum's friend was going to give me a lift home. I was there for a few hours, 11 PM or so, and all went well. When they returned the mother said her husband, police officer, was going to drive me home. As we started off, he didn't turn right back down the road. The way we had come. He turned left. Heading up the mountain and into the forest. I asked him why are we going this way? He replied it's just another way. Those were the only words he spoke to me. We sat in silence. He drove slowly deeper into the forest. When I said it was a longer route, I mean 45 minute drive instead of 15. I thought it was weird, but I was a naive and innocent kid. At one point I asked him if we were nearly there yet. No answer. I remember thinking maybe they had an argument as they were pretty cold with each other when they got home he did drop me off home safe and sound. And I thought nothing of it. Until I was an adult and the memory popped into my head one day. I don't understand why a grown man. And a police officer. Would take that route with a young teen at 11.30 at night. I often wonder if he had sinister reasons. I didn't babysit again. Maybe I knew deep down it was weird. I'll tell you a story that has left me both perplexed and fascinated. It involves a young preteen boy named John, who hailed from a local farming family. One fateful day, while he was out in the fields, John vanished without a trace. The entire village rallied together in a frantic search, desperately hoping to find any clue as to his whereabouts. However, despite their efforts, John remained elusive, and his family endured the unbearable agony of his absence. Then, in a twist of fate that seemed almost miraculous, four years after his disappearance, John inexplicably reappeared at the farmhouse. Strangely, he appeared virtually unchanged, as if only a single day had passed since his vanishing. Understandably, 
John found it immensely difficult to comprehend the passage of time that his parents insisted had transpired during his absence. As he recounted his extraordinary tale, it became clear that his experiences during those lost years were far from ordinary. According to John, he had been accosted by a group of peculiar little men while he was in the field. Their actions rendered him completely senseless, and when he regained consciousness, he found himself in a mysterious land unlike anything he had ever seen before. Frustratingly, he could not provide a coherent explanation of this new realm, but he insisted that the enigmatic little men possessed the ability to show him glimpses of his family's lives. During his time in captivity, John was able to describe in vivid detail certain events that had taken place in his family's absence. He spoke of their visits to Ramsey Corn Market and other activities that he had witnessed from this perplexing land. However, despite his desperate attempts to communicate with his family, all his efforts were in vain. He existed as a mere observer, unable to directly interact with his loved ones, despite his ghost-like endeavors to reach out to them. To John's dismay, he lost all sense of time during his sojourn in that mysterious realm. Days, months, and years merged into a bewildering blur, leaving him disoriented and disconnected from the flow of time that governed his family's lives. Then, one day, he awakened in a peculiar spot, far removed from the company of the little men who had held him captive. Sensing their absence, he seized the opportunity to make his way home, gradually regaining his senses as he journeyed back to the farmhouse. Although still groggy from his ordeal, John's relief upon finding his family again was immeasurable. To this day, John remains unable to provide a satisfactory explanation for the inexplicable events he experienced. The enigma surrounding his disappearance and subsequent return has left both him and those who hear his story astounded and bewildered. The tale of John's bewildering odyssey serves as a reminder of the unfathomable mysteries that exist beyond the confines of our everyday reality, forever challenging our understanding of the world around us. My friends and I were around 13-14 years old. An old abandoned house was on a dirt road about 2-3 kilometers from where we grew up. We checked out the house and realized it was packed with marijuana plants and what looked like a sophisticated operation. We ran away. But two of my friends went back, wanting to steal the marijuana. I knew this was occurring but choose to stay home. When they were inside the owner slash operator came into the house with a rifle. My friends hid in the closet. He passed directly by the closet with a rifle. He spent about 10 minutes looking around the house and then he left. They then departed the house and ran home through the woods. They did think they might have been shot that day, and they never did see his face. For me personally, if you're out in the woods or in an abandoned facility and you see a drug operation. I found myself lounging near the tranquil shores of Phaleron a place known for its romantic allure. Lost in contemplation, I stood upon the rugged rocks, my gaze fixated on the vast expanse of the sea. It was in this moment that a peculiar sight caught my attention. Glancing to my right, I spotted two young men perched upon the rocks, not far from where I stood. They possessed an imposing stature, 
towering above the average man. Curiosity peaked, I directed my gaze towards them, only to discover that they were observing the stars through a large square object of extraordinary brightness. Its radiance was nearly blinding, and as I observed it with astonishment, a breathtaking spectacle unfolded before my eyes. Mars, the red planet, materialized before me in vivid detail, as if a grand performance were unfolding on a theater stage. The two strangers engaged in intricate finger movements and seemed to communicate with the inhabitants of Mars. Astonishingly, the people of this distant world responded in a language unfamiliar to my ears. I beheld women and girls of ethereal beauty, tall and graceful, their captivating forms etching themselves into the depths of my memory. Birds of vibrant plumage flitted about, alighting upon the shoulders of these celestial maidens. I bore witness to a multitude of mesmerizing sights and heard melodies of unparalleled loveliness. After some time, the two strangers averted their gaze from the planet, and in the blink of an eye, Mars resumed its place in the firmament, just as it had always been. Overwhelmed by the encounter, I approached the enigmatic duo. As they caught sight of me, they shifted their positions and politely asked if I could spare a light. I offered them matches and cigars, which they graciously accepted. In return, they bestowed upon me a single cigar, claiming to have acquired it in Cuba the day before. To my bewilderment, I informed them that Cuba lay over 4,000 miles away. Undeterred, the two men calmly stated that they hailed from the planet Mars. Intrigued, I listened intently as they proceeded to unveil an extraordinary narrative of civilizations thriving on the distant planet. They spoke of ancient conflicts between various Martian factions, describing their adversaries as the Pelosgians. Eventually, the Pelosgians were vanquished, and the survivors fled in airships, eventually landing in the northwestern region of Greece, which we now know as Albania. These refugees, it seemed, were the original settlers of Greece. Furthermore, the Martians revealed that Earth's civilization, in the year 1905, lagged behind Mars by a staggering 100,000 years. They claimed that war had not plagued Mars for over 200,000 years, and astonishingly, they had unraveled the secret of immortality. According to these extraordinary beings, electricity held the key to eternal life. Each morning, the Martians would supposedly nourish themselves with electricity as a potent antidote against death. To my astonishment, they even proclaimed that the revered philosophers Socrates and Demosthenes were not mere figures of history but currently lived on Mars, flourishing in their immortal existence. Soon, the shrill sound of a whistle pierced the air, emanating from one of the Martians who introduced himself as Telemachus, while his companion went by the name Phidias. In response to the signal, two robust men emerged from a nearby boat, leaping fearlessly into the waters that plunged to depths of no less than 60 feet. Strapped to their feet were elongated skates fashioned from glistening yellow metal, affixed with sturdy wires. This remarkable contraption enabled the Martians to glide safely across the water's surface. Captivated by this mesmerizing display, I found myself ushered aboard a magnificent floating airship. Within its opulent confines, we dined together, and it was there that I learned of their primary objective on Earth, to meet the renowned inventor Edison in relation to a recent invention that could potentially prove fatal for humanity. 
Eventually, the time came for me to bid farewell to my extraordinary Martian companions. They escorted me back to the shore, where we parted ways, our encounter etched deeply into the fabric of my memory. Ever since I was a kid, I remember my grandma denouncing horror of any kind, ghoulish Halloween masks, haunted houses, scary movies. I had attributed this aversion to her background and faith. She is Hispanic and a devout Catholic. She believes anything horror-related is wrong, evil, you name it. So imagine my shock and curiosity when my grandparents shared a bombshell. Back in 1974, my grandpa convinced my grandma to see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This would be her first and last scary movie. The weekend after the movie, my grandpa, grandma, my then toddler-age mother and my aunts and uncles decide that they will go horseback riding for the first time. Since everyone lived in Wisconsin, my family made the journey to a farm about two hours away. For the most part, everyone is in high spirits. Who can say no to a family adventure on a crisp, autumn Wisconsin day? Despite the other's excitement, my grandma is worried. Since she doesn't care for horses, she chooses to stay behind, on her own, with my mother. When my family arrives at the farm, it is three o'clock. According to my grandma, she watched everyone get saddled up and then slowly ride off into the tangle of trees. The guide leading my family called out that the ride would last less than two hours, mentioning different trails, the need for breaks, things of that nature. My grandma figures everyone will be back by five o'clock. She waits with my mother in the car, playing games, reading storybooks, and trying to silence her bubbling anxiety. Needless to say, five o'clock comes and goes. No sign of my family. By this time, my mother has fallen asleep, which leaves my grandma with no way to distract herself from her worries. Finally, when six o'clock rolls around, she calls to a farmhand from her car window. No way is she leaving the safety of her vehicle. She demands to know why her family hasn't returned yet when five o'clock has long since passed. By now, darkness has begun bleeding into the Wisconsin sky. The farmhand assures her that everything is okay, and that extra paths are taken throughout the ride. He tells her that her family should return soon. Now keep in mind, this was well before cell phones were a thing. Also, a week before, she had seen her first scary movie and it had scared the shit out of her. At this point, my poor grandma feels like she's living out a scene from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. She tries to contain her worry and begins a hushed, fearful prayer. Until the flash of lightning that is soon followed by ear-splitting thunder. The noise wakes my mother who starts to cry. My grandma must now not only ponder the frightening question of where her family went, but she also has a stressed, howling two-year-old to deal with. It is now reaching seven o'clock. The storm is growing more ferocious by the second. My grandma has to pee and her bladder feels like it's going to explode, but between the roar of the storm and the images of crazed country maniacs plaguing her mind, she refuses to leave the vehicle. She plans in her head, that if they aren't back by 7.30, she's going to leave and find the nearest gas station to phone for help. Again, no cell phones during these days. 7.30 comes. 
Her family hasn't come out from the woods. As she's scrambling around the car for the keys, she realizes my grandpa never gave them to her. The pound of a fist against her window shakes her from her whirlwind of panic. That panic amplifies by a million when she notices a sizable, brawny man peering in at her. He is wearing a jacket and the hood covers his head. My grandma says that, by now, it felt like someone had pushed a button and sent the world into slow motion. Everything crawled by at a snail's pace. Why don't you and the little one come inside? The man yells. His words are authoritative and carry no hint of warmth. He isn't speaking from a place of concern, he's ordering my grandma into the farmhouse. All my grandma can do is shout, where is my family? The man responds, gruffly, we're looking for them. My grandma orders him to call the police. The next words the man said made my grandma literally piss her pants. We don't need the police. As he turns to go back into his house, he says, you and the baby can come inside whenever you're ready. My grandma starts to sob, wholly convinced that her family has been brutally murdered and that she and her baby will be next. In the chaos of this moment, she hears someone calling her name. But because of the pitch black darkness and her profound fear, she knows she must be hearing things. Then she hears her name again, this time even louder. Dora! Help me! It's my grandpa's voice. When she realizes this, she puts my mom in the back seat, grabs the wooden baseball bat my grandpa keeps under his seat, locks the doors and then exits the car. Keep calling my name. I can't see you. She cries. After what feels like an eternity, she follows my grandpa's voice to his location. When she gets to him, she realizes my grandpa needed help because he is guiding my aunt across the high, rain-soaked grass. She hurt her ankle. They are both drenched from mud and rain, and covered in scratches. The rest of my family is nowhere in sight. Before my grandma can assume the worst, she hears my uncle calling for my grandpa. One by one, everyone shuffles out of the wild woods and through the tall grass. Everyone is soaked in mud and injured in some capacity. Cuts, gashes, limping, unsteady. All are shaken as well. When they finally make it back to their vehicles, the sounds of running engines and the flood of headlights gets the attention of the man inside the farmhouse. The farmhouse door swings open and the brawny man comes to stand on the porch. With an amused chuckle, he drawls, Oh, you all made it out of there? My grandpa shouts, That dumb asshole left us out there and never came back. All the man says in response is, I'll have to talk to him about that. You all can come inside. His freakishly flippant and joking attitude sinks into his words. He knows damn well they aren't going into his house. My grandma begs my grandpa to leave it and get them out of here. With that, my family tears out of there as fast as humanly possible. Once my family was back home and safe, my grandpa explained what had happened. During the ride, the guide led them deep into the woods to a creek, where the horses stopped for a drink. As the horses rested, the guide told my family he had to go do something and would be back in 20 minutes. My family thought this was strange and my grandpa even anxiously joked, you're coming back, right? The guide simply gave a low chuckle and took off on his horse. 20 minutes came and went, and the guide didn't return. My family continued to wait, as they had no idea where to go, 
They could see the sky blackening above them. They would have to make it out on their own. As my family rode off, they tried to remember the path back to the farm. They wandered aimlessly. Eventually, rain started to fall. Pulsing lightning and the crash of thunder spooked the horses. Everyone but my grandpa got thrown off their horses. When my grandpa climbed off his horse to help the others, his own horse galloped away as well. From there, it was a nightmare trying to navigate the woods while wounded and roaming through a thick void of darkness. The only advice I can give you is this. If you're going horseback riding, you better make sure it doesn't become a horseback ride from hell.